Pastor Kevin today, I guess. So let me start out. Something sports, something, something sports. That's usually how it sounds to me, right? Uh, when I'm a nerd, I'm like, oh, that pretty, sounds pretty cool, but I don't know what he's talking about. Um, uh, okay, so I'm not Pastor Kevin, and uh, we're going to talk this morning. We're finished with Jonah, so we're having a little, a little pause here, and Kevin has given me a little freedom to uh, pick a topic that's off the, the schedule that, that he's on. And so today we're going to talk about an objection to Christianity, and specific an objection to the Bible. Um, it's a very common one. You hear it all the time, and it's this. You can't take the Bible literally. Don't take the Bible literally. You can't take it literally. So I want to discuss and um, think that through and look at what Scripture has to say about that. But let's open with prayer. Father, we ask that you, your Holy Spirit would come and speak to us today, that this service would be from beginning to end guided by your Spirit, and that you would uh, form us and shape us, our hearts, our minds, our social lives in such a way that uh, mirrors Jesus and his character and glorifies you through his church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bible, we're going to look at a book in the New Testament. It has, the Bible has two rough divisions, Old and New Testament. We're going to look roughly in the middle of the New Testament at 2 Timothy chapter 3, and this is a classic passage on uh, the scriptures, uh, of Christian understanding of scripture. This passage is a classic uh, passage on it. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. And it reads this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, and from infancy have known the Holy Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, here's the context. This is a letter written to the Apostle Paul to one of his uh, mentees, uh, Timothy. Timothy was very important in the early church. Paul had sort of um, uh, discipled him and trained him in being a pastor, and now Timothy was pastoring on his own in the Greek city of Ephesus. Actually, it's in Turkey nowadays, but it was a Greek city ethnically and linguistically at the time, and uh, he was writing a letter to them, and he was saying in here... um, He's giving him advice on how to run a church, how to be a pastor, practically, what to do. And he's saying, well, your most important tool is the Bible. Your most important tool is the scripture. And he says, we know that this scripture has been God-breathed. And what he means by that is the Greek word there is theonoustos, which is theos means God. And you hear that when you say theology, the study of God, the theo part is God. Even the name Theodore is lover of God, right? That theo part. And then noustos is, uh, we get the word like pneumatic pump, an air pump. So it's God air, literally God air, but it means God breathed. And what it's saying is, think of a bellows, you know, when you have to fill up your, um, your camping uh, mattress. And it has to, you have to breathe it in, it has to be breathed in. And the Bible is like that. God has breathed himself into it. Um, think of the opposite, you know, it, the Bible says when Adam died, he exhaled, right, and his in his, uh, in his last breath. And also, when Adam, when God made him, he said he formed him of the ground, and then God, what did he do? He inhaled, inhaled whew, breathed in the breath of life, 
into Adam, and Adam became a living soul, Genesis tells us. So this is sort of the model here. We have this Bible, and God, just like he breathed into Adam and gave Adam life, he breathes into the scriptures and gives it uh, uh, divine life and divine authority. So Paul is saying, because of that, use this tool as a pastor. There's things you're going to have to do as a pastor that are difficult. And he says, um, uh, it's useful for what? Teaching, you have to do that as a pastor. Rebuking, that's probably not the funnest part of the job, but you have to do it. Correcting and training in righteousness. In the army, it was funny, the, in basic training, the drill sergeants were never allowed to punish you. Technically, punishment is legal, and if you get punished, you have to get an Article 15, or you have a, a right to go to court. They can't just punish you. But what seemed like punishment to us, the drill sergeants were happy to say, was really just corrective training. Well, no, I'm not punishing you. I'm, just, I'm allowed to train you in a way that corrects you. I'm just engaging in corrective training. So you can see pastors engaging in correcting and training, uh, hopefully a little more gently than our drill sergeants did. Um, so that's what Paul's saying here. This is the, the context of the passage. Um, now, the objection I want to address today is very common in our culture. You hear it all the time. Don't take the Bible literally, or you can't take the Bible literally. So what I want to do today is first look at and understand the objection. What's, what does it mean? What are they talking about? Second, give a very brief reply because there's entire books written in reply to this objection. So we'll give a brief one today. Third, explore the motivation. Like, why are you saying that? Why are you thinking that? What, what's your motive for bringing this objection forth? And then lastly, uh, reflect a bit on how to apply this to our lives. So first, you can't read the Bible literally. Um, there's two basic reasons that critics of Christianity give for this. One is that if you read the Bible literally, it gives you a false picture of the world. And secondly, if you read the Bible literally, it gives you a false picture of God, right? So let me quote John Shelby Spong in his book, Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism. He says, the earth is not flat. We now have empirical proof of this fact taken from spaceships hurtling away from the planet. The earth is not also the center of the universe. That realization has been alive since the days of Copernicus and Galileo. Everything written by the Bible writers about the heavens and the earth assumed that the earth was at the center of the universe. To the degree the Bible makes these assumptions, the Bible cannot be literal for us. Um, and what Spong's getting at, and by the way, he's a bishop in the Episcopalian church, and so what Bishop Spong is saying is, look, there's two different pictures of the universe. And when I, cosmology is the technical term for the, for the study of the big picture of the universe. And the ancients, according to him, and there's uh, a lot of truth to, to this, I'm not, um, the cultures around Israel had a view of the universe. They thought it was sort of like a snow globe, maybe, where it was flat, and then the sky was like a dome, like a see-through dome. And you see that a little bit of this hinted at in Revelation, where it says it rained and a hatch opened up, and the rain flooded during the flood, right before the flood. And um, we'll look at some other passages on this. And then below that, is hell. Like, literally, again, the ancient, in the ancient world, it's the underworld. Like, don't go down under the ground. There's bad things there. That's where evil resides, right? And so he's saying, look, this is an ignorant picture of the world. This cosmology is ancient and ignorant, and we have science now, and we know that the real picture is of um, a bunch of stars. Oh, and by the way, the stars in that picture are like 
Christmas lights hanging from the, from the dome, right? They're like, you know, two miles up, really small light bulbs, two miles up, that sort of thing. And we all know this is false, so you can't, you can't take the Bible literally, right? That's, that's his objection on that point. Um, interestingly, when I was in Ethiopia, uh, I'm, we met with some Catholic priests down in very rural Ethiopia. Um, one was Irish and one was French. The French one had a PhD in astrophysics, so cosmology, and the local Ethiopian Orthodox Church asked him, hey, could you train, train our, um, our deacons, which is like a priest in training, train our deacons in cosmology? And he went and taught them modern cosmology. Now, this is very rural Ethiopia. Uh, Arba Mench is the area. And uh, he said, they got so mad after I taught them that the sun is a huge ball of fire and the earth goes around the sun and not because of the Bible. There's a book in the Ethiopian version of the Bible um, called Enoch. And it says that the earth's in the center and there's 12 paths. And so these guys came up to him and they were furious. Like, you know, why are you lying about there's 12 paths? To, you know, they were spelling out the cosmology of this book that's not in the Bible called the book of Enoch. And it was an interesting anecdote. He, you know, he wanted to be respectful, but also sort of teach them. So this is what Spong is saying. Come on, let's not be like these guys. When you read the Bible literally, you get nonsense. Um, let me give you a couple examples. Um, the Bible says, for according to Spong, the objection in Ecclesiastes 1.5, the sun rises and sets. First of all, we know the sun doesn't rise and set, Spong would say, right? The earth just turns, and the sun is like a lamp, and what we call sunrise and sunset is just the earth turning. So again, you can't take it literally, but listen to this. The, earth, the sun rises and sets, and then hurries back to where it rises. So this is what he's saying. Look, if you take it literally, you're getting this picture of rising and setting and then sort of resetting for the next day, right? Um, Psalm 93.1, the Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The, the world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Spong means to say that this means, doesn't this teach that the earth doesn't move? We'll see in a little while that there's a bit of stretching in, in these things and uh, perspective that needs to be had in understanding these. But his point is, on the surface, it looks like it's saying the earth is fixed. It doesn't move. But we know the earth does move. Um, First Chronicles 6.30, trembled before him all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. And then other things the critic points out, the people who say you can't take the Bible literally. They say, look, if you take it literally, you also get this mis mis mistaken impression about the Bible, about the world, that the earth is flat like a map with edges. So, for example, Job 28, 24, for God views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. It's like he's got a map and he's looking at that from a bird's eye point of view and he just has it all rolled out and sees it. Isaiah 44, 24, the Lord is, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who have made all things and who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread, spread the earth before myself. So he's stretching out the heavens He's spreading the earth before himself. Um, I'm not saying these are great, uh, great reasons to believe their thesis, but I want to put out their thesis fairly and objectively at the beginning, so before we critique them. Uh, he says in Isaiah 41.9, I took you from the ends of the earth. Did the earth have ends? Isn't it a circle? Where's the ends of the earth, Spong would say? From the farthest corners, I called you. Corners? Does, again, if, if it's a globe, there's no corners. The spheres don't have corners. I said, you are my servant, I chose you, have not rejected you. Lastly, Revelation 7, 1, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners, 
holding back the four winds to prevent them from blowing. So you can see the idea here. Look, you can't just take this stuff literally because it's, uh, it, it gives you a, mis a twisted picture of reality. Um, you also get, they said, a twisted picture of God, says Bishop Spong. So let's read this a bit. He says, God says that, sorry, if you read the Bible, you get the idea of God as like a weak, um, human-like figure, right? He, he makes mistakes, he errs, he forgets, he's emotional, he changes his mind. He seems not like the God that we think of, this solid uh, mensch, so to speak, but he's, he seems to be very much like humans, but only more powerful, sort of like the Greek gods. When you read the Greek gods, oh, they always misbehave. They're really, really strong, but their character is not much different than humans. You have some that are kind of good, some that are kind of bad, etc., etc. And Spong is saying, when you read the Bible, it's sort of like the Greek gods, right? Um, here's a quote uh, from uh, Spong. Homer and Hesiod have ascribed all things to the god that are shame and disgrace. In other words, the Greek gods act you know, ridiculous and immature, stealing and adulteries and deceiving another. And this was held due to the representation of the gods, sorry, this is anophanes, in human form. Men make gods in their own image. Those of the Ethiopians are black and snub-nosed. Those of the Thracians have blue eyes and red hair. If horses and oxen or lions had hands and could produce works of art, they too would represent the gods after their own fashion. So we make God in our image. And so if horses could make artwork, they would make idols, then God would look like a horse. And lions would make God, lion, God look like a lion, right? So when you read the Old Testament, it seems like the kind of God you get is really just a really strong human, as faulty and as problematic as the rest of us. Here are some per verses they point to. Exodus 32, 14, about uh, the Lord changing his mind. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Really? So God's like us. He changes his mind. 2 Samuel 24, 16, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed it, enough, now relax your hand. Genesis 9, 16, when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant God and every living creature of the, of the world, uh, that sorry, that all the flesh that is on the earth. So God made a rainbow to remind him and, our, and us that he would never destroy the world by water again. Does he need a reminder? Does he need a post-it note? Don't destroy the earth by flood again, I promise. But Spong would say, see, if you, if you read the Bible literally, this is the kind of stuff that you get. He's sometimes portrayed as having a body part, like face and hands. So for example, quote, then the man and his wife heard the Lord God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and he, they hid themselves from the Lord Lord God, among the trees. But the Lord God called to them, where are you? Notice a couple things. God's walking. If you take it literally, God's walking through the garden. And, and if you take it literally, it's like, where'd those guys go? Where are you guys? Doesn't know where they are, right? Uh, Exodus 7, 5. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Lord, the Lord, and I will stretch out my hand to Egypt and bring the, out the sons of Israel from their midst. Uh, I'll get, go through this quickly, a few others. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. God has a face? Um, the eyes of the Lord, does he have eyes? Go, are towards the righteous and his ears open to their cry. See, you get, if you get, if you um, rubes and fundamentalists take the Bible literally, this is the kind of, of difficulties that you arrive at. So let me stop there and address 
some of what's being said, and then get to the deeper issue, uh, the more fundamental issue here. First of all, and I think most of you guys can see this as apparent, there's a big mistake here. The big mistake is not interpreting the Bible properly. Uh, the old saying goes, do you interpret? People used to ask this. I don't know if they do it anymore, but when, when they'd find out you're a Christian, say in the 80s and 90s, like the immediate response was, do you take the Bible literally? Do you interpret the Bible literally? And the right response was then and is now, well, the literal parts. Yeah, I take the literal parts literally, but the poetical parts I take poetically, and the metaphorical parts I take metaphorically. And in all the, you know, depends on the genre. It, and you interpret the kind of literature according to the type it is. The word genre just means type. There's different kinds of literature, right? We all know there's poetry. We all know that the classified ads in the newspaper is a different kind of, of writing. We don't interpret the classified ads the same way we interpret poetry. They have different rules. So if something is poetic, if something is historical narrative, if something is a moral lesson, if something is uh, hyperbole, hyperbole is exaggeration to make a point. It's, we learn it in modern day English. You're taught how to write and use hyperbole. So when Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He doesn't literally mean that. He's using a genre, a type of rhetorical speaking to say, sin is serious. You want to know how serious? If your right eye causes you to sin, take it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's rhetoric to, to get his audience to fully understand that it's no joke. He's not literally recommending cutting off body parts, and that would be against the Old Testament laws as well. So um, you have to look and understand genre. Uh, again, the different types of literature. Are we looking at poetry? Are we looking at narrative? Are we looking at parables? Each one has different rules, and you can't take the rules for understanding one type of literature and apply it to another. That's simply a mistake. Um, let me give you guys a few examples. We know, um, we know in Hollywood we see these genres, science fiction, action-adventure, romantic comedies, uh, comedies. I don't know. It seems like there's no more comedies. Like, they're all blending into romantic comedies. Like, I'm happy to watch a comedy with my wife, but it's like, can you find a comedy that's not a romantic comedy? seems like that genre is going away. Uh, but romantic comedy, etc. And here, let me give you guys an example. Here's an example of a movie made long ago. It's one of these cheesy action-adventure movies made for like 14-year-old boys. And in it, it's uh, the people as Samuel L. Jackson, and they're on this underwater um, sh a research vessel. So they're deep underwater. They're doing genetic research on animals. And they, they make these sharks, and they make these sharks even more vicious, right? These like super DNA sharks. And everything's falling apart, of course. Again, it's a 14-year-old action movie, a made-for-14-year-old action movie. And the shark's eating people, and they're all running, you know. I, I haven't seen it, but I've heard of, like, the movie Snakes on a Plane, that sort of stuff, right? That level of deep literature. And, uh, and as they're all falling apart, the leader comes. And we've seen this in this genre. We've all seen this in these movies. Samuel L. Jackson gets up, and he gives his speech. And the, the leader gives up, and everyone's falling apart. He says, we can do this. We're going to pull together, and, and he gives this big inspiring speech, and everyone's like, yeah. And then finally, at the end, they, they survive, they make it. But you need that scene where the leader pulls everyone together. So you guys know what I'm talking about. Here's a clip uh, to give you an example. So we all know the genre, and the director knows we know the genre. So the director sets us up. And Samuel L. Jackson, who's going to kill off the main star, right? 
But you're all thinking, all right, he's got this. They're all going to pull together. Boom, he's gone. He's eaten by a shark. And the point of that is we had a rule for the genre. We knew how to interpret that rule. The director, knowing that rule as well, like, no, that's not how it goes. Then they all rally around, and they finally come out, and they win. He completely subverts our expectations and plays a game with the rule of, of the genre, right? So again, these rules are important. Let me give you another example, a poem. I want you guys to read a poem I'm going to put on the screen here. It's called The Situation. And now, poems are really difficult to understand, uh, especially if you're like, um, sort of uh, have Asperger's like me. You're like, what? Just say things logically so I can understand it. But they're really important. So as difficult as it is, I want you guys to seriously try to understand what this means in your mind. So even if you're a little cynical about poems, just for now, just play along, do me a favor. I'm gonna read this, close your eyes. Close your eyes while I read this and I want you to try to get an, uh, an understanding of the poem. Things will not necessarily, will not be necessarily continuous. The fact that they are something other than perfectly continuous ought not to be characterized as a pause. There will be some things people will see. There will be some things that people won't see. And life goes on. Okay, you can open your eyes. Now, what does that poem mean? How could we interpret it? I'm sure there's lots of different ways. But what if I told you, if you could put up on the screen, that this actually isn't a poem, that this is a briefing from the Department of Defense by Secretary, um, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld in the during the Taliban war in 2001, he was giving a briefing about people are like, when, when are you going to push the button? When are you going to get you know, bin Laden back, et cetera, et cetera? Well, if I say it to you as a poem, it's hard to understand. You're like, because you're thinking of the rules of interpretation for poetry. And then I read it too. I put it in the lines because so, we know that's a cue for the, the genre of poetry that's line spaced a certain way. But once someone tells you, oh, wait a minute, this is actually a U.S. Department of Defense briefing during a war, and all he's saying is some things will happen, some things you'll see when it happens, sometimes you won't see when it happens. It changes it entirely. So understanding the genre of the literature that you're trying to read and understand is fundamental. Fundamental. If you don't know the kind of genre that you're reading, you won't, know the, you won't apply the right rules to understanding it. And that's exactly what's going on with many of the quotes that talk about, uh, that Spong mentions, the earth having four corners or God's eyes going to and fro throughout the earth. Um, let me give you a few examples of different types of genre that help us to understand this. So if one is phenomenal language. Phenomenal just means appearance, the phenomenon, right? So the classic example is the sun rising and setting. We use that phrase today. We know that the, that the sun does not move through the sky and that the earth just rotates as it faces the sun. We know that. We continue to use it. It's a type of speech, a figure of speech, um, phenomenalism, is, which says you talk based upon the way things appear. It appears that the sun is moving through the sky. It's not making a literal claim. It's simply an appearance. So there's many, many cases of phenomenal language, both in ordinary English literature and in other languages, and also in the scripture. Meteorologists say this. Even today, someone might say, you know, you might hear in a, a romantic comedy, you know, I, I love her and I will go to the ends of the earth for her. The person saying that in the 21st century isn't thinking, yeah, really, I'd go to the edge. I won't go over the edge, but I love her enough to go to the edge. No one's thinking that. 
It's figurative language to describe I would go, how far I would go for you. Again, if you understand the phenomenal language, understand figurative language, you're not going to be uh, tempted to misinterpret these passages. Um, we also even say the four winds, the seven seas, we have language like that, phenomenal language. Okay, anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic means a language that makes something appear like a man. And we do this, again, outside the Bible, lots of poems will personify ideas. Like, um, you, one example from the Bible, the Old Testament is in um, Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 8, uh, 8 or 31, uh, where wisdom Wisdom, just what wisdom is, it's an idea, but it's described like a woman. He's purposely, figuratively describing the concept of being wise and wisdom as a woman. It's, it's wisdom and, uh, personified. And we do this in lots and lots and lots of English literature and other sorts of literature. Um, yeah, it's, uh, sorry, it's Proverbs chapter 8, I have a passage up there. Does not wisdom call out? So it's wisdom. Does not understanding raise her voice? So it's personified as a female here with a voice. Now imagine if some atheist or something said, look, you can't take that literally. Wisdom isn't the kind of thing that has vocal cords. You would say, yeah, you're right. We don't take it literally because we know it's anthropomorphic language, it's poetical language. And just like we know that, when it says that, uh, that God's eyes search the world for the righteous, we understand that as well. So... Um, again, you can't take it, interpret the Bible literally. You're right. But just the literal parts should be taken literally, but not the non-literal parts. And most Christians don't do that. It's a, what we call a straw man. A straw man is you misrepresent your opponent and say, ah, look at these guys believe some dumb stuff. They take all the Bible literally. No, nobody does. Not even the most extreme fundamentalists in the 1950s took the Bible literally in that sense, right? So, Wisdom is personified. It has lips, a voice, mouth, etc. Um, but let's uh, set aside this. We could go on forever on these sorts, giving lots of examples on how to properly interpret the Bible. Way back in the day, we taught a class here at High Point on biblical interpretation, uh, where we spent a lot of detail on different ways to uh, interpret the Bible. But there's a lot written on that. We could go on forever. Let's get to some of the more fundamental points. And that's this. What's the ultimate point of this objection? Why, is, why does a friend or a coworker, or in this case, John Shelby Spong, why do they say this? What's, what are they getting at when they say, you can't take the Bible literally? What's their motive? What's their real point? I mean, we all know you can't take the Bible literally in the sense of the non-literal parts. That was never a controversy. What they're trying to imply is that if you take the Bible literally, you end up with foolishness. So what they're really saying is, don't take it seriously. They say, don't take the Bible literally, but what they really mean is, don't take it seriously. What they're trying to do is undermine the authority of the Bible. Come on, this is just silliness. You can't take it seriously when it, it talks about, you know, God having body parts and the earth having corners and trees that touch, that are so tall that they touch the sky. You can't take any of that literally. And really the goal is to undermine biblical authority. What do I mean by biblical authority? Well, authority... Um, Think of the U.S. government. It's the legal authority within our country. It's the legal authority. When the government says something, generally speaking, you got to obey it legally. They're, they're legally in charge. You go to another country, they're the legal authority. So there's legal authority. There's also moral authorities. So a moral authority might be Mother Teresa. 
She gave up her life in Europe and went and lived amongst the poorest of the poor in Calcutta. And if she talks about helping the poor, we should listen. Doesn't mean we have to do what she says. She's not a legal authority, but her moral example is so strong that when she speaks on it, even if we disagree, we have every right to disagree with her, but we should say, you know what? She's bought some credibility. She's a moral authority. Or Gandhi, if he says, well, let's settle this without fighting. You might say, no, sometimes you got to fight and disagree with them, but at least sit down, give the guy some respect. He's a moral authority on taking a, a beating and not fighting back physically, right? So there's a moral authority. Then there's something called epistemic authority, which means you're an authority in knowledge-wise. That means you're an expert, really. So you're an authority on the topic. Let's take medicine. Now, it's a controversy to use. If I would have used this example five years ago, people were like, well, yeah, of course, doctors are authority. Now, now everyone, for political reasons, depends on your political view. But generally speaking, doctors are experts on the human body and on medicine, or engineers. Take a bridge engineer builder. He says, oh, yeah, um, that bridge ain't going to work. It's not, it, can't, it doesn't have enough tensile, tensile strength or whatever. It's going to fall if it, if it gets two trucks on it. Could he be wrong? Yeah. But he's an authority on the topic. So when we say the Bible is an authority, we mean all of those. We mean God is our legal authority. Legally, if God tells us to do something, he created us, he created everything, we're under an obligation to obey him. Not legally as in the laws of the U.S., but the laws of the universe. Uh, secondly, he's a moral authority. Jesus has lived a perfect example. He's much, a much better example than Mother Teresa. When Jesus says something morally, we should listen and go, you know, that seems a little... I'll be honest, inside, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me, Jesus, but you're the one who's saying it, so it, it must be right. And thirdly, epistemic authority. When the Bible says something, it's an authority, an expert on the topic, especially the topic is uh, human beings and how to live properly, you know, psychologically, spiritually, socially. On those topics in particular, the Bible is an absolute authority. It knows what, now we might disagree, but it's like disagreeing with the uh, engineer on the bridge. Why? On what basis would you disagree with the expert on the bridge? So in all these cases, when they say, when the objection arises, you can't take the Bible literally, the main point is to undermine the authority of Scripture. Look, we see this. I don't want to get into politics at all. But, um, and there's a big division here. I mean, there's issues that are political and issues that are ethical. And they kind of overlap and it gets complicated. So let's sideswipe some of the political controversy and focus just a little bit on how we think the Bible is being undermined today. There's a lot of social pressure when it comes to Christian ethics, when it comes to Christian ethics on, on abortion, for example, or Christian ethics on um, homosexuality or trans or these other issues. There's a tremendous amount of social pressure to just conform to the latest thing, like whatever... whatever um, whatever the world around us sees as ethically right or whatever. Um, and it's important that we be faithful to Scripture. Now, it also means we should be honest to Scripture because there's lots of times in the past where the world was right and the church was wrong. So take slavery in the South. I've actually read, years and years ago, read Southern theologians in the South who are defending slavery. And you're thinking, what are you reading their arguments from the Bible? And like, what are you people thinking? And to be fair, there was also Christ Christians on the other side, abolitionists, who were leading, leading the charge, particularly in the North, against slavery. But imagine down South if someone says, well, you know, it's these abolitionists. They're being, it's the world pressuring us, and I'm going to uh, stick with Scripture. Well, what really happened was you have to stop and ask yourselves objectively, what is Scripture really teaching, apart from your culture, your Southern culture, your Northern culture, and it's hard to do. 
So sometimes when we're reading Scripture, we have to ask ourselves, am I being faithful to Scripture? Or, like, like during the period of slavery where some Christians, some in the South, defended slavery, uh, was that, is it really my culture here and I'm thinking it's Scripture? So we always have to be aware of that, that our culture can bias us. But once we've been faithfully interpreted Scripture, asked the difficult questions, it just simply uh, rejects the authority of God when we say, I'm sorry, it's too painful. It's too embarrassing. It costs too much money. It costs my job. It costs other things. Uh, I, I look, I'm embarrassed. If you, live, if you work in Seattle at, a, at Amazon or whatever at a, about, with a bunch of professionals and they ask you, um, what do you think about this topic? If you say a traditional Christian view on, again, I'm talking about the, the issues I mentioned earlier, homosexuality, what, abortion, whatever, uh, everyone's going to think you're dumb or worse, right? And there's going to be a social cost to it. And the question is, and you can feel it in these environments. I mean, all of us can. Um, what do you do? One of my sons is less diplomatic than me. He was playing soccer at his soccer team. And I don't know why I came up with this, the boys in the soccer team at practice. They said, hey, what do you think about abortion? And again, he's my far less diplomatic son. And um, he said, oh, I think it's the murder of a baby and it should be completely outlawed uh, and it's horrible. And he said everyone was quiet. And then later on, one kid snuck up to him and said, I agree, I agree with you, right? He took a stand. And now, again, he said it pretty harshly. The, me the method he said it, like it's complete murder, it should, you know, flat out. It's like maybe you could put it more diplomatically without compromising something. There's that balance. But um, okay, so really what it's trying to do is undermine the authority of Scripture. Je uh, Shelby Spong says this. He said, sex, this is a quote, sex drove me from the Bible. I'm not going to read the whole quote for time's sake. But he basically said, as modern times changed, this was written in the 80s, but in the 60s, 70s, 80s, the sexual revolution, he's basically the traditional Christian biblical ethic on sex, and what seemed right ethically from society was such attention to him, it just came to him to seem wrong. It's wrong to say that homosexuality is a sin. It's wrong to say that sex outside of marriage is a sin. It's wrong to say abortion is a sin. And it was conflict with Christian, traditional Christian sexual ethics that drove him to undermine the Bible. And we see the same thing today. It's that specific conflict that seems to be put pressure on us. And I will just say I've met with several people over the last, say, 10 years, and almost all of them that have left the faith or had real big problems, it was over these issues. Not in their personal life. I mean, they thought that it was really mean to say that homosexuality is a sin, it was unloving, it was horrible, and I just can't be a Christian anymore because of that ethical issue. Or it could be abortion. Again, I'm not talking personal here, because this person I was talking to wasn't a homosexual. And um, so these issues, though, put pressure on people, and, um, and you see it today. Look, if there's a conflict there, I guess I, only one can, can stay in uh, one or the other. I guess I'm going to have to give up the Bible because it's just too wrong and too painful um, to hold these antiquated ethical views on various Christian ethical issues. So let me stop real quick. We have, uh, in just one minute, I want to turn the focus on us for a minute. So yes, you can't take the Bible literally. The point of that is to undermine Scripture. And a lot of that is, uh, too much of that, I should say, too much of that is because of cultural conflicts in the United States and elsewhere. It's just as bad in Europe for European Christians. In fact, my daughter's in France now with European Christians and uh, European, really, I mean, evangelical, born-again Christians there. They've 
in my view, have gone really conform too much to the world. Let's put it that way. They're even, they've caved in a lot of issues. Genuine Christians who believe in biblical authority. But think of the ways that we undermine biblical authority. It's easy to think of the world or the Christian who disagrees with us on, on various Christian ethical issues. Let me give you guys a few examples. First, uh, we often, we will regulate our views on politics and society by first taking our cultural view, whether that's conservative or less conservative, and then reading it into the Bible. Just like those Southern uh, theologians around, during the time of the Civil War, they clearly did that. They took their Southern culture on slavery, and then they found any verse in the Bible that could even remotely be seen to justify slavery, and then they dug into it, and in my view, twisted it and expanded it in such a way as to justify what was going on in uh, the Southern uh, the American institution of slavery in the South. Again, if you go read them, it's a fascinating historically to actually read their own words at the time. You think, what are they thinking? But they're not dummies either. So it's just a fascinating read. And we do that as well a lot. How often do we take a view that we have politically we start out with, but then we go and find it in the Bible? So it's not the Bible first, and then we conform our politics to it. And I'm not saying we do this consciously. Um, but what we do is we start out with political views, and then we search for it and justify it in the Bible. Um, again, and I mean this on sort of both sides. That When we do that, we're undermining biblical authority. We're saying, me, my political and social views come first, and the Bible will serve that need. The Bible will conform to my political or social views. Um, how many Christians don't crack a Bible until Sunday? We believe in biblical authority. Don't try to, don't try to like uh, undermine the scriptural authority, but I don't really read the thing. I read it once a week, maybe. Uh, really? So you believe in biblical authority? You believe you hold the word of God in your hand? You're willing to defend it against social pressures when it comes to controversial ethical issues, but don't have time to crack it open and read it? We undermine the scriptural authority in our own ways as well. Um, how about... Uh, let me get a little harsh here, but 22% of married men have had an affair at some point in their life, and the statistics vary, right? Um, and the stats for people who claim to be Christian are about the same. When they do polls on this, if you identify as a Christian, and then they ask non-Christians, ethically, we're about the same. If they ask, how many times do you go to church a week, once a week, twice a week, it, gets, it changes. People who go twice a week, the, the stats on divorce and adult drop dramatically. It's still there, but it drops dramatically. 25% um, of all search engine requests are porn-related. 25%. Yeah, yeah, we believe in the biblical, biblical authority. We, shouldn't, you know, we're, we, we know that this uh, homosexuality, according to traditional Christianity and Scripture, is a sin, but close the curtains, look up porn, Right? My son is 22. He just came back from college, and he, he's a Bible study leader for InterVarsity Inter Christian Fellowship at his college, and he was just telling us, Dad, 70% of the boys that I work with are addicted to porn. Not that they look up porn once in a while or slip up or something. He said addicted. They can't stop. He said maybe they'll stop for, like, at the best, a couple months. And he said, but 70%, and he works close with them, he's accountability partners, and they all, 70%. And uh, we were talking about this in some other regard, and like, uh, should a girl marry a guy who's addicted to porn? No, that seems unwise. But if 70% if of young men are addicted to porn, what, we just don't procreate anymore? I mean, this is a, a serious issue. But 
we're faithful on homosexuality, but we're faithful on abortion. 70% of our young people are, are addicted. He didn't say look at porn. They can't stop. They pray. They have accountability. The, the boys' groups talk about this all the time. 70% at his school can't stop. But, hey, we got the right issues on the, other, on the cultural issues. We have the right issues. Well, I've gone over, so um, let's pray. And um, keep in mind that all this, that yes, we need to be faithful on the cultural issues, and I mean that seriously. And that means making sure that we got the right scriptural view, not just because we're con- con- contracultural, but make sure we have the right. Make sure we're not the southern Christians who are like, yep, right here in the Bible. Make sure of that. And once we do that, be faithful. But also, what's much more important to our lives and our family lives is that we personally treat the Scripture as an authority, that we follow it, that we act like we really believe it, that we care about it, read it, obey it, organize our lives around it. That's far more important in the end. You know what? The church was persecuted. The United States has, it's only 250 years old. Who knows what will be here in 250 years? The church will remain. We're going to be here for a long time until the second coming, whatever that is. And making sure that our community is faithful to Scripture and that the people who make up our community are living faithful Christian lives under the authority of Scripture is much more important in the end than duking it out with the non-believers on on their uh, pagan views of sexual ethics. Lord, we ask that your Spirit would enliven us to both give us courage to live our Christian faith in the world without compromising, and secondly, and more importantly, to apply the authority of Scripture in our own lives, to really focus on ourselves, on where we fall short of obeying you, of obeying your word, of respecting your word, of reading your word, of memorizing your word. Please help us to be people of the word who respect the authority of God's word and not just those who bring it around when it comes to controversial issues and duke it out with others. Please, Lord, help us to sincerely follow your word. It's a light to our feet and a lamp to our path and guides us in all of our ways. In Jesus' name, amen.